0: I mentioned in the last episode that 1 Corinthians is generally considered an occasional letter, meaning that it was written and arranged in response to particular problems that existed within a real live church. And so in between the fairly standard introduction and epistolary conclusion, we have a mishmash of topics that appear somewhat unrelated. The first topic has to do with the issue of factionalism and leadership. The church in Corinth is a divided church. Some are Peter people. Some are Paul people, some are Apollos people, and the super-spiritual, of course, are Jesus people. This is a church made up of people who are used to picking a team. They're used to following a powerful and charismatic leader. And so they have brought that inclination into the Church of Christ unexamined. Remember, as mentioned in the last episode... The primary problem in this church is their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the society in which they lived, closed quote. These people had brought their attitudes and values and behaviors with respect to leadership in general, and rhetoric in particular, into the church, unevaluated and unedited. And so that is the first thing that Paul wants to address in this epistle. He began doing that in chapter 1. And he continues to do that here in chapter two. Many scholars argue that this first issue actually takes up the better part of the first four chapters in 1 Corinthians. And while it may be possible to debate the precise divisions between topics, I think that sense of things is basically true. So we're talking about leadership and authority and wisdom. We're talking about knowledge, preaching, and power. What is real? What is false? What is human? And what is divine? Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul says that when he came to Corinth, he made a decision not to imitate the normal habits and patterns of the worldly leaders that were typically so admired in a city like Corinth. Ciampa and Rosner are helpful here. They tell us that in the ancient world, a public speaker's initial visit to a city was critical to establishing their reputation. Orators, would compete for applause and offer entertainment to diners in between courses at the best banquets. Competitive showmanship was the order of the day, closed quote. The people in Corinth had a category that they thought that Christian apostles should fit into. They were public intellectuals, they were professional orators, and they assumed that they would conduct themselves as such but Paul wants nothing to do with that stereotype. He remembered Jesus saying, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Closed quote. Leadership in the Gentile world was about power and the projection of that power. But Jesus explicitly said that in his world, in his church, leadership would be understood and conducted differently. There would be a humility, a lowliness, a meekness, a commitment to service of the most demanding and costly kind. So Paul appears to have almost exaggerated the difference between himself and these professional orators. He says that he came in weakness, fear, and trembling. The word he used there for weakness is the Greek word asthenia, which the dictionary defines as want of strength, weakness, feebleness, bodily infirmity, state of ill health, sickness, frailty, imperfection, suffering, and affliction, closed quote. So, Paul did not look like a professional orator. Paul did not look like a professional anything. He looked like a trauma victim. And some of that may have been an intentional choice, and some of that may have just been how Paul actually looked. In the second century acts of Paul and Thecla, Paul is said to be a man small of stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. Closed quote. So maybe even when he wasn't trying, Paul didn't look the part of a public intellectual. He, he didn't look like a leader. Today, we would say he didn't look like he could fill a pulpit. He wouldn't look good in a suit. There was nothing compelling about this package. And there was nothing at all spectacular about his presentation. He didn't use flowery language. He didn't overwhelm with displays of rhetorical flourish. He spoke in a straightforward, expository fashion. And he always worked out from a central and dominating theme. He says in verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, obviously that doesn't mean that Paul only recited and explicated the essential facts associated with Jesus' death on the cross. The very fact that Paul is about to speak about 10 topics related to the Christian life, several of which he says he's spoken to them about before, clearly indicates that Paul spoke about a variety of things in his ministry to the Corinthians, but they were all rooted in and conditioned by the overwhelming reality of Christ on the cross. One commentator puts it this way, For Paul, Christ crucified is more than just the means of forgiveness and salvation but informs his total vision of the Christian life and ministry, closed quote. Remember, the overarching theme of this epistle is how to live as a follower of Jesus. First Corinthians is about gospel implications. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So this letter is about the lifestyle that is appropriate for people believing in and following after a crucified Messiah. That's what this is about. And Everything has to be pressed through that matrix. How you do leadership has to be pressed through the matrix of the cross. How you do preaching has to be pressed through the matrix of the cross. How you understand power has to be pressed through the matrix of the cross. That's what Paul means when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preached the fact of the cross. And Paul says, I preached the faith of the cross. And more than that, he says, I embodied that fact and that faith in my own manner, appearance, and being. I looked like a guy in the service of a crucified Messiah. And my message was confirmed among you in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Ever since the Pentecostal revival in the early 20th century, it's been very common to hear that Paul was saying in this verse that God validated his ministry among the Corinthians by means of signs and wonders. Now, of course, it's true that Paul did many signs and wonders, but is that what Paul is speaking about here? Based on what he has already said in this letter, it seems highly unlikely. In the last chapter, in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul said, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So Paul has just said that he will not accommodate the Jewish demand for proof via signs and wonders or the Greek demand for ostentatious display and overwhelming rhetoric. He will not promote his gospel in either of those ways. So it would be very odd now for him to say that his gospel was in fact validated in one of those ways. And therefore, the vast majority of scholars do not understand Paul as speaking of signs and wonders in this passage. Gordon Fee, for example, in his book, God's Empowering Presence, says here, More likely, therefore, especially in the context of personal weakness, and in keeping with 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-6, it refers to their actual conversion, closed quote. Meaning, the proof that Paul is talking about, the demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, are to be understood as the testimony of truly transformed lives. It was people getting saved. It was people seeing and delighting in Christ. That was the miracle, the miracle of actual conversion. Fee referenced 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-6 in the citation I just mentioned, where Paul says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. So there's that parallel phrase, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Closed quote. So in this largely parallel passage, Paul says, we know that you are chosen Because the word preached over you was met with Holy Spirit power within you, such that you received the word in affliction and with joy. So there, in that passage, the power of the Holy Spirit means help to believe the word preached. It it means becoming an actual born-again believer. That is the only proof of Christian leadership that ultimately matters. And that, Paul says, was the proof of my ministry. a spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of christ here in this final section paul speaks about the wisdom that is from god you might have got the impression in chapter 1 that paul was opposed to all wisdom but that's not the case he is simply opposed to worldly wisdom there is a wisdom that is from god but it doesn't make any sense to the unconverted person. It is, in that sense, hidden, and it is, in that sense, a mystery. True wisdom requires the gracious intervention of God. Jesus said that in Matthew eleven twenty five to 26. He prayed it, actually. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, closed quote. <laughs> These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, Paul says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So, true wisdom, true understanding is not a matter of rhetoric. It's not a matter of appearance or personal power. It is a matter of the Spirit. True understanding, true wisdom is given... By God, and according to Jesus, received by little children. Jesus was talking about the disciples there, so we understand him to mean simple, trusting, humble souls. That's who gets to plumb the depths of God. Now, there are several we statements that can give us trouble as readers of the English text. Paul switches from first person singular to first person plural throughout this chapter. And so every time you see a we, you have to look at the context to see what we is intended. A few of the we's in this chapter likely refer to all people having the Spirit. All people having the Spirit understand things given to them from God, as per verse 12. But most of the we's in this chapter likely refer to the apostles as a group meaning that Paul is contrasting the way that the apostles have unpacked the wisdom of God in Christ with the way that wisdom is generally pervade in the Greco-Roman culture out of which these new believers have come. So, for example, the pillar New Testament commentary says about verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. In keeping with earlier uses of the first-person plural pronoun in such statements, we here does refer to the apostles specifically, but also to others who are spiritual, for they receive the message of God's wisdom, closed quote. So if you accept the apostolic revelation concerning the wisdom of God in Christ, then you too have the mind of Christ, because the gospel is the wisdom of God. Christ on the cross is the wisdom of God. Of course, it only appears as such and is received as such to those who have been given the Spirit. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation